Temple of Geek Podcast is a weekly show brought to you by the folks at TempleofGeek.com. Are you into cosplay, movies, video games, and other geeky content? Why don't you head over to TempleofGeek.com? There you'll find all sorts of content that pertains to the world of geek. Enjoy the show. Beaming at you from the depths of the internet. This is the Temple of Geek Podcast. Your one stop for all things geek. All things geek. Welcome to the Temple of Geek Podcast, a show about nothing and everything at the same time. You can find this podcast and more by heading over to templeofgeek.com. You can also follow us on our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube by using the handle Temple of Geek. I'm your host, Daniel, and this week i got a lot of stuff to talk to you about, so let's go ahead and dig right in. I'm going to go ahead and start with some news articles. Have you ever wanted to see an R-rated Ghost Rider film? Apparently, Nicolas Cage would like to see Ghost Rider return to the big screen in an R-rated movie, but with somebody else leading the role. Nicolas Cage revealed to uh, Joe Blow that he wished that Ghost Rider would receive more of an extreme treatment. Um, he said he would like to see an R-rated Ghost Rider, but feels that he shouldn't be the lead role. Cage says, quote, You know, Ghost Rider was a movie that always should have been an R-rated movie. David Goyer had a brilliant script which I wanted to do with David, and for whatever reason, they just didn't let us make the movie. But that movie is still a movie that should be made. Not with me, obviously, but it should be an R-rated movie. Heck, Deadpool was R-rated and did great. The Ghost Rider was designed to be a scary superhero with an R-rating and edge that they just didn't have when it worked out back then. End quote. I, for one, wouldn't mind seeing an R-rated uh, Ghost Rider. You know, we had Robbie Reyes's version appear on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., what was it, last season? And that actually was really good compared to what we've seen on the big screen with Nicolas Cage. So I really think in the right hands, you know, with Marvel and everybody, maybe even on Netflix, a Ghost Rider show could be done and done well, R-rated. Just take a look at the Marvel Netflix shows. I mean, those are technically R-rated shows, and they are extremely well put together films, shows, whatever you want to call them. But... A Ghost Rider movie would actually be really awesome to see, and I agree with Nicolas Cage. I mean, he, he was good for the time, but it's time to move on to a different actor, and let's see what else someone can do with the role, if they decide to go that route. Sticking with Marvel just for a bit more, Disney and Marvel Studios have confirmed some more cast for uh, Marvel's Captain Marvel. That's kind of fun to say, Marvel's Captain Marvel. Yeah, I wonder if that's what the title's going to be. But anyway, uh... The cast and announcement that has me really excited is the return of Clark Gregg to the big screen, a.k.a. the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, for those of you who are in the know, Clark Gregg played the character Agent Coulson, who died in the first Avengers movie about eight years ago. Since then, Coulson has been brought back to life on the small screen on ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., where he's been successfully running a show for the last five seasons. Um... But sadly, the Avengers don't know he's alive, or at least we're led to believe that. You know, I still have the firm belief that Tony Stark knows he's alive somewhere, but we'll get to that later. Now, the cool thing is, is Captain Marvel takes place in the 90s, so it's going to be pre-Coulson's death. So we're going to see a younger Coulson um, in the Captain Marvel universe. Now, do I want to see Coulson brought back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Heck yeah, I do. I mean, Coulson's one of my favorite characters on, on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He was one of my favorite secondary characters in the in the Avengers movies. So to see him brought back to live action makes me really happy. But I would actually like to see him brought back to the MCU proper. Since he's already in existence, let, let's end 
phase three or four or whatever phase we're on with the Avengers finding out that Coulson's still alive. Some of the other cast members that they announced are Samuel L. Jackson. He's going to return as Nick Fury. And Guardian of the Galaxies, Lee Pace and Dejman Hansu. I'm sorry if I butchered that name. They're going to both be returning as Ronan the Accuser and Korath the Pursuer. That means that Ronan the Accuser is going to get some more backstory. He was touted as probably one of the worst Marvel villains. Not really one of the worst, but he didn't really have that you know, charismatic personality like, let's say, Loki or even the Vulture had in, in Spider-Man Homecoming. So I think it's kind of cool that they're going to give these characters a second chance to kind of maybe flesh out their story a little bit more and probably make them a little bit more likable. Uh, it's, it's going to be interesting. Not much else is known about uh, Captain Marvel, except for these little bit of announcements that they make. And, you know, some of the stuff that we've been seeing leaking from the set, like her costume and things like that. It does look like Captain Marvel is still on track to be released March 8th of 2019. So that's going to take place right after Ant-Man and the Wasp. So we'll have more news as soon as that stuff breaks. There was a little movie that debuted last week by the name of Ready Player One, uh, Steven Spielberg's newest uh, blockbuster. Um, it actually took top place this weekend with an estimated four-day total of $53 million. Um, what's kind of cool about that is, is they were only projecting a $45 million debut. So that means that word of mouth has actually helped basically beat this expectation by $10 million. It opened in China to a $61.7 million, which is the studio's biggest opening there. So the film's sitting at $181.2 million worldwide. That's pretty damn good, actually, for a movie that you know was based off of a book and that a lot of people didn't really have faith in because when you asked people about the book, they either loved it or hate it because of the different references that were in the book. You know, Some people felt that the book was very nostalgic heavy, while others loved the fact that there was so much nostalgia in the book. So the movie was good. Um, and that's actually going to lead me into tonight's main topic. Uh, I want to kind of just briefly talk a little bit about Ready Player One and kind of just talk about some of the differences between Ready Player One the movie and Ready Player One the book. So let's begin. Here are my thoughts about Ready Player One. Um, it was good. <laughs> I was actually pretty impressed with the movie. I didn't know what to expect going in. And I know that's kind of weird considering that I've read the book three times. But I know typically that movies that are translated from books don't really get the proper treatment on film. And that was one of my big concerns going into the movie was that I wasn't going to get the story of Ready Player One on film. Now, I knew Steven Spielberg had it, and I wasn't really too concerned. You know, with the fact that Steven Spielberg was behind the lens, I knew we were going to get a pretty decent story. So I wasn't concerned about, you know, getting a pretty decent st story. My concern was, was I going to get Ready Player One? And in essence, I did get Ready Player One. It was a really good movie, and it, it, it held the spirit of the book. I mean, the spirit of the book was there. Uh, it, it, it was, I'm not going to say a perfect movie, but it was a really damn good movie. The special effects looked fantastic. Oh, my God. I just could not believe the visuals in that movie. Uh, the human world, they made sure that the human world was as bleak as possible, not interesting. But when you got into that virtual world, it made you want to stay there. And that, that's I think that they did a really good job explaining why these people are you know wanting to go back continuously to the Oasis. The characters... 
the characters were, you know, they were a little one-dimensional. It was your typical tropes from a movie. You had your big bad bad guy. You had your hero. You had your, you know, your your female girlfriend love interest, and you had his best friend, and you had the two other background characters. So the characters themselves were just your typical, you know. 80s superhero, or not really superheroes, but your 80 heroes, 80s heroes from you know back in the day. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything new. The bad guy, uh, which was Mr. Sorrento, uh, he's your typical bad guy. Ben Mendelsohn played him really well, but again, he was just your typical bad guy, head person that wanted to take over the world type guy. So you know there wasn't anything new on that part. Now, the music was great. Alan Silvestri did a really good job scoring that movie. Uh, it made it feel like like a typical John Williams piece. I know Steven Spielberg typically works with John Williams, and he's worked with Silvestri before in the past. But, you know, typically when you think of John Williams or Steven Spielberg, you think of John Williams. Um, so seeing that Spielberg went with Silvestri was kind of weird to me, but after hearing his score, I can understand why. The music fit perfectly with the movie. Uh, each each character had their own little theme, um, kind of like what, you know, similar to what John Williams does with his character pieces, and it, it just, it flowed together with the movie very well. I will definitely be picking up the soundtrack as soon as I can, you know, get my hands on it. So, yeah, the music was great. Special effects were great. The movie was great. If I had to give the movie a rating, I would probably say it was a 4 out of 5. Not a perfect film, but definitely worth going out and seeing. So, with that out of the way, let me talk a little bit about the differences between the movie and the book. Now, this is going to be very spoiler heavy, so if you have not seen the movie yet, please stop this recording now, come back when you get done watching the movie, and then you can hear about all the differences. Basically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain some of the parts that happened in the movie, and compare to them to what happened in the book, so just that you can kind of get an idea of what the difference was between the two, the two different mediums. So here we go. Right off the bat, the very first big difference that I noticed between the book and the movie were the characters themselves. Now, not necessarily about how the characters acted, but more about like how the characters met, and just you know how they got along with each other. In the book. When Wade goes and finds the first key, uh, by the way, in the book, Wade does find the first key first before everyone else, so that part kind of stayed the same. But that's where he first meets Artemis. And when he meets Artemis, you know, prior to him meeting her, you find out that he's been following her blog and that he's had kind of an internet crush on her and he always wanted to meet her. It was like his little internet celebrity that he never got to meet. And then when he finally meets her, you know, he first of all is trying to hide the fact that he found the key. And get the hell out of there so he can go through the first gate. And second of all, you know, they never met in person. They, throughout the entire book, you know, he always tried to get her to meet him in person. And she would not meet him in person because, you know, she felt that he would be disgusted with the way she looked. Now, the movie followed the book pretty closely with the whole fact that she had a birthmark on her face. In the book, it goes into details about how she, you know, she just didn't feel comfortable with the birthmark, and it made her feel like, she, you know, very self-conscious about herself and stuff. And I don't feel like the movie did a really good job with that, especially at the fact that they met in the middle of the freaking movie. They didn't even have a chance to like keep the mystery of who this girl was. 
Now, I understand it's because they wanted to show the actors off and all that stuff. I, I get that, and I get the storytelling part of it. But you, I, I don't know. I just felt like that part should have been followed a little bit more closely to the book. I mean, it, it, it helped keep you in suspense about who these characters were. And it's also the same with H. You know, H, you don't find out that she's a she until the end of the book when her and um, uh, Parseval meets for the first time. Uh, he, he finds out that she's a young African-American woman that's been driving around in an RV so she could stay on, on the run. And, you know, yeah, they kind of did that in the movie. But again, I mean, it was just kind of a rush deal. They actually went into details and explained that why she pretended to be a male on online was because she felt that males, white males especially, had a better opportunity than um, African-American females um, or African-Americans at, for that matter. So... You know, she pretended to be a white male so she can afford herself better opportunities. And, you know, you learn all this in the book. And they didn't really go into any of that in the movie. Um, Shoto and Daito. In the movie, Shoto's named Sho. I don't know why they made that change, but they did. So, um, Daito is his friend. Uh, and Shoto and Daito in the book, they were a little bit closer to age. They weren't, you know, they weren't years apart but they were a little bit closer to, uh, in age but in the movie uh they made sure that show and dieto were you know basically years apart i mean dieto probably was in his young 20s and shoto was 11 so that was just that kind of threw me off a little bit too and also spoiler alert dieto doesn't die in the movie so the high five lives throughout this entire movie which is a drastic difference from the book in the book you find out that trying to get the Jade Key, Do, uh, Shoto and Daito get into a battle with the Sixers, and the Sixers actually break into his apartment and throw Daito out the window while he's playing the game, which causes you know basically him to die and his avatar to die. But you didn't see any of that in the movie. Daito and Shoto in the movie were basically just background characters, which isn't bad. But and I understand it's a two-hour movie and you're trying to cram as much as you in, but you can in. But it's. It, I don't know. I just felt like they probably could have done a little bit more with them. So, you know, that's that was number one with with the one of the major differences that I noticed between the book and and the movie. The second big noticeable difference between the book and the movie were basically how the keys were found. So in the book, you had the way the the way that the contest was structured was you found a key, you found a gate and rinse wash and repeat basically you had to find key gate key gate key gate in order to basically proceed through the contest you had to every key gave you a clue to the gate every gate gave you a key to the next clue and so on and so forth so the way it worked was uh the copper key you had to defeat a character by the name of um Aserarach, the demolich he's a character from dungeons and dragons you had to beat him, you know, in the classic arcade game, Joust. Uh, you had to win two out of three times in order to obtain the copper key. Once you've obtained the copper key, you had to go halfway across the galaxy to uh, a recreation of Halliday's homestead and play a, a game that unlocked a war game simulator. And what I mean by simulator was you actually re you played the part of Matthew Roderick's character in war games and basically re 
played the whole movie word for word. You had to remember this, the lines and act out his emotions and everything on scene like, like you're in the movie. So that was the first key in game. The J key was you had to uh, find all the treasures in a three-dimensional type rendering 3D play platform of Zork. So they basically took Zork and put it in a three-dimensional world. And you had to find all the trophies. Once you found all the trophies, you had to dig a, uh, a whistle out of a cereal box, uh, Captain Crunch to be specific, blow the whistle, and it unlocked the uh, Jade Key. And then from there, you take the Jade Key and you unlock a, a room that took you into the, uh, the game Black Tiger, where you played a 3D version of Black Tiger, and you had to start, from start to finish with one quarter. Finally, the Crystal Key... You had to play a guitar at an altar on a Rush planet, a Rush the music group, um, and you had to play a song from the album uh, 2112. After you played the song, you got a clue that basically told you how to, how to open up the crystal gate. Then you had to take the guitar and stick it on the altar so you can get the key. Once you got the crystal key, you had to head over to uh, Holiday's Castle, um, Castle Amarak, and you had to beat a high score in Tempest, and then you had to play through a movie of Monty Python, and then you had to uh, unlock the first Easter, uh, I'm sorry, the first Easter egg in the game Adventure from the from the Atari 2600. Now that was from the book, and I understand for time purposes there is no way in hell they could have done all of that in the movie because then the movie would have been 15 parts long and it would have taken forever. I understand that, but in the movie, it was you got a you got the copper key, the jade key, and the crystal key, and it didn't really seem like there were any gates. The keys unlocked clues to the next key. So that was the first change. The second change was basically how you obtain the keys. The copper key was obtained by surviving a race. You had to, and you've seen the race in the trailers, you've had to win that race, and no one's ever won the race in five years, and of course in the movie, Parcival's the first one to figure out how to beat that race which I find a little weird how he beat it, and I'm not going to spoil that here. I'll let you go see the movie. But it was it was a little bit too convenient the way he figured it out and won that race. After he got the first clue, um, it takes you to the section where you had to unlock the Jade Key. And in this movie, the way you unlock the Jade Key was you had to play out scenes from the movie The Shining. So they kind of followed a little bit of the, the book where you know you had to play out a movie it wasn't exactly word for word verbatim that you know the shining parts they had to figure out clues within the shining simulator in order to unlock the key but once they got the key uh that key gave them a clue to the crystal key and in that movie you go to amorak's castle and in amorak's castle you have to beat the first uh the first atari game that had uh, an easter egg in it which was adventure and so they, they kept that part of it the same. But for the most part, the way you acquired the challenges were just completely different. Now, what would I have done? Would I have kept some of the challenges in there? I probably would have. I probably would have, would have made the movie a little bit different by making you go through a key and then a gate. So that way you could have solved more of the challenges. Because um, that's really what the book was about, was them trying to solve the puzzles and everything to unlock these ch different challenges and these different keys. So... I probably would have done something to that effect. Uh, in the book, in order to unlock the crystal gate, three people with the crystal key had to unlock the gate. In the movie, what they ended up doing was you had to have all three keys, the copper jade and uh, crystal key, to open the gate. So they made it to where you had to have three keys, but it was it, it didn't really follow the theme of the book where together, you know, being together with friends 
blah blah blah. They just they they made it to where Parsifal is the winner. So that was that was big issue number two. Number three's major change was the whole rebellion thing. Um, there wasn't even a rebellion mentioned in the book, but yet Artemis was the leader of this underground rebellion that was trying to stop the Sixers from taking over the Oasis. So go see the movie so you can understand that plot point, but I, I'm going to tell you now that that whole plot wasn't even in the movie, You know, let alone the fact that Wade met uh, Sarah in that scene. I'm sorry, not Sarah, but Samantha in that scene. You don't in the book again. You don't get to meet Samantha until the very end. So, yeah, that whole that whole thing was different. My number four big change from the book to the movie is the part where uh, where uh, Artemis goes and becomes a uh, um, you know she gets captured by the Sixers. In the book, uh, it was actually Parsifal, and Parsifal allowed himself to get caught by basically forging his identity and pretending that he acquired. A massive amount of debt that he's never paid off which basically caused him to come collect him to work off his debt and the reason why he did that was he was trying to figure out how to bring down the the force field that was surrounded by castle amarak and so in the book you know he gets captured and for eight days he's behind enemy lines hacking into their computers and getting as much intel as he can he gets the intel from about sorrento blowing up his mobile home and killing his aunt he collects intel about how they killed uh, Daito. He collects information on the uh, on the spell that they're using to cast the force field over Castle Amarak, so he can get the clues to bring um, on how to basically bring it down. And then he sets up a a whole little chain of events to uh, actually bring down the force field, which was actually kind of cool. But in the movie, Artemis is the one who gets captured, and she gets captured because the Sixers actually raid their location where they're at, and uh, she forces Wade to keep going because she says that you're going to be the winner and you need to you need to win this blah 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 blah, and she keeps herself behind to basically save Wade and gets captured by the Sixers, and they do kind of the similar thing except the one thing I didn't like was they kind of made her a damsel in distress in this scene, where in order for her to get out you know Wade and company had to come rescue her which Artemis wasn't really that type of character in the book so I don't know why they went that route in the movie. But they did, and, you know, it wasn't a bad scene. It's just that, you know, the, the tropes of the damsel in distress, I think, should be far and away, you know, nowadays in movies. So, I don't know. I just, that part I didn't agree with in the movie because, again, Artemis was such a, I, I felt, a strong character in the book. And I don't think they really did her justice by doing that to her in, in the movie. Um, big change number four, and this is happens very early in the movie. In the book... Artemis is, I'm sorry, not Artemis, but Parsifal's aunt hated Parsifal. The only reason why she was allowing him to live with her was because she collected his food vouchers and stuff, so that way she, you know, she can, you know, feed herself or whatever. And then anytime he would bring any type of technology home, she would take it, steal it from him, and go pawn it so she can get some money. She was just a, a big loser. But in the movie, they made it out that, you know, Parsifal loved his aunt, and his aunt kind of loved him. She was still married to a, you know, or dating a dick boyfriend, but they kind of had feelings, you know, for each other, that they actually liked each other. So that's not a major issue, but it was just, you know, it kind of it kind of was distracting from for those who actually read the book and knew what they were, or thought what they were going to expect there with that relationship. 
but got something else, got something completely different. So that was change number four. Change number five is really short and you know just pretty much the location. In the book, it starts off in Oklahoma City. That's where Wade's from, and then he ends up migrating over to Columbus, Ohio. In the movie, they just basically start right off in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so if you read the book, you're going to find out that the stacks were actually located in um, Oklahoma City and don't really play any major part except for you know the fact that they blow up later. Um, but in the movie, they actually used this, that that location as a uh, you know an introduction to Wade, as well as the final climactic um, finale to the movie. So that was a little change that was a little a little different to me. Man, now that I'm sitting here talking about this, I'm thinking about all the differences. <laughs> Difference number six, Ogden Morrow. So in the book, Ogden Morrow, uh, you know he he played a character or his avatar in in the Oasis was the great and powerful Og. And um, when the characters see him for the first time in the game, uh, he's was invited to his birthday party. And, you know, the Sixers, of course, raid the birthday party and all that stuff. Well, you don't see Ogden Morrow too much in the movie, except for when you see scenes between Ogden and Holiday, Holiday talking about, you know, or, you know, you're seeing the flashback scenes from from Holiday's memories or whatever. Um, it isn't until later in the in the movie that you find out that Ogden was actually the carekeeper of of the uh, Holiday journals. Uh, so that was a major change from the book. Um, another minor change that was you know in the book was when Wade got the quarter to get himself the extra life. Uh, he had to play a perfect game of Pac Man in order to acquire that that quarter. But in the uh, in the movie, he had a wager with, with Ogden, who at the time he didn't know was Ogden, and um, won the wager, so Ogden gave him a quarter. So in the movie, it made it out that Ogden was kind of manipulating the game from the sidelines more than what he did in the book. In the book, Ogden actually you know, was staying out of the game as much as he could, and the only time he intervened was at the very end when the Sixers were cheating and basically put the castle inside of force field. So he went and rescued all four of the remaining kids and brought them back to his house so they can you know, get back into the game and continue on with the contest. That was the only time he interfered in the game. But in the movie, you know, he seemed like he was interfering by you know, working with Wade indirectly uh, at the Holiday Journals, kind of keeping an eye on what Wade and company were doing, and you know, helping Wade out by giving him the quarter and things like that. So it's not a major issue, not a major difference, but it's still one that should be pointed out. Another major change, and this one was kind of big for me, was the character of Iraq. In the book, he was basically described as a poser uh, gunter. He was he was someone that just he wasn't really a truly gunter, true gunter. He didn't really understand the pop culture. He didn't really know everything that um, H and R, uh, H and um, and Parsifal knew. He was just one of those guys that, you know, basically Parcel didn't like, but H kind of kept him around because, you know, he considered him not really a true friend, but just kind of considered him acquaintance and he, that he liked to have someone there that he could make fun of and things like that. But in the movie, they actually made Iraq, you know, a, Nolan Sorrento's chief henchman. Uh, Iraq was actually in a pretty good chunk of the film. Uh, and he actually kind of got annoying towards the end. He was funny, but I just, I didn't like his character in the book and I, you know, I, didn't really have any love for him in the movie. So I don't know. He was, it, it was a change that didn't bother me, but I could have done without, I mean, 
Nolan Sorrento was enough to be, you know, enough of a bad guy to, you know, carry the movie by himself. There was no need to have Irock as a henchman. Um, and then speaking of henchmen for uh, Sorrento, in the real world, he had another henchman by the name of Fanal Zandor. Now, she was, um, first of all, played by Hannah, Hannah John Kamen, and she didn't even exist in the book. She was one of the Sixers collection agencies that went and collected people for to pay off their debts in the movie. But in the book, she didn't exist. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they actually created a character specifically to have, for Sorrento to have basically, I guess, lackeys to serve under him. I don't know. It was It was kind of weird, but... Yeah, she and she really didn't have that big of a part in the movie except for towards the end. But other than that, I mean, yeah, she didn't, doesn't exist in the book. So if you're going to read the book to look, learn more about her, she's not there. Now in the book, you know, the the final battle is like really, really epic. I mean, they go into detail about some of the cool things that you see. In the movie, they actually did a really good job pulling off, you know, some of the epicness of that battle. But there was one major missing part from the book, and it's the giant robots that were in the in the final scene. Um, you know, in the movie they had Iron Giant, which was piloted by H, and um, and you know Sorrento gets in. You know, spoiler alert, he gets into Mecha Godzilla, um, and that's the same thing that happened in the book. And then you also see in the movie uh, who is it? Daito pilots uh, a Gundam. So thought that was really cool, really awesome. But some of the things that you're missing from the book was like Parcival piloting Spider-Man's uh, Leopardon from the 70s Japanese television show. And then there was uh, Transer Z that was piloted by Artemis. If the, it's a character from Mazinger Z. Um, in the book, H actually piloted the, uh, the Gundam. And Shoto piloted a robot by the name of Raiden. Uh, it's from a property called Brave Raiden, and I'm not too familiar with it, but, you know, it was supposedly Raiden was this huge, big-ass robot. So you had these four major robots from, you know, Parcival's team versus Mechagodzilla, the five lines of Voltron, and then multiple other characters from Neon Genesis Evangelion. So... That would have been really cool to see that on screen. I know that they probably couldn't get the rights for all the characters, but it just would have been so amazing to see these robots just battling it out like they did in the book. There are many other changes from the book um, and the movie. Uh, I would totally recommend that you go see the movie and then listen to the book or you know purchase the book to read. Uh, both properties are really good in their own rights. The movie, like I said, was really good, and I really appreciated the movie for what it was able to pull off. And it was, it was a really good movie in its own right. The book, on the other hand, I'm always going to love the book. The book is probably one of my top three or four favorite books of all time. So that it will be a book that I will continue to read, you know, probably forever. But I totally recommend both of them. Give them both a chance. Uh, they're both, like I said, they both are, have their own merits. They both are tell their own versions of the story. And they're both really good. So I... The film is great. The book is great. I recommend both. So now that I've gushed for the last, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes about Ready Player One, um, I want to kind of finish out this episode talking a little bit about some of the ongoings on our website. First up, if you haven't been to our website in a while, we just recently posted some of our galleries from uh, WonderCon. And there's one gallery I kind of want to send you to directly that you should really totally check out. And I'm going to provide the link in the show notes here as soon as I get this episode posted. 
But we sent one of our uh, photographers, Jose Vasquez, to WonderCon with his Infinity Gauntlet. And while he was there with his Infinity Gauntlet, he decided to take some pictures with the various cosplayers dressed up as different uh, Marvel characters. And basically, well, you're going to have to go to the site to check out these photographs. Uh, Again, like I said, I'll I'll share the link in the uh, show notes um, of this episode. So please, why don't you go over there and... uh, Give those uh, photos a, a view. And then, you know, while you're also at it, head on over to Twitter and you can um, go ahead and talk to Jose yourself by tweeting him at, at Reflector90. Also, a new episode of Daniel's Toy Chest has been uh, put up recently. In this episode, I reviewed the uh, Mega Constructs He-Man and Skeletor minifigs that came out too long ago. And I'm going to have to say, I never knew... Mega Blocks actually got cool. So uh, check out that episode. It, it's, it's up on templeofgeek.com right now. And you can also find that on our YouTube channel. Just recently had an Instagram takeover for AwesomeCon over in Washington, D.C. You may know the artist who took over our Instagram page. She goes by the moniker Butternut Gouache. So I want to give a big shout out to Aaron Leffler. Thank you for helping us out and throwing up some of the cool pictures that you did. It was really awesome and we had a lot of blast watching you have fun. And finally... Retro Rebel Podcast is getting ready to celebrate their 50th episode. That episode is going to drop this Thursday on templeofgeek.com. So stay tuned to templeofgeek.com for that episode and more. Well, I think that's about all the news I can provide to you today. Uh, Thanks for joining me on this episode of Temple of Geek Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at info at templeofgeek.com. You can also find us on social media by heading over to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube and using the handle Temple of Geek. You want to help our show out? Head over to iTunes and Stitcher and give our show some ratings, especially those five-star ratings, because those ratings will really help our show and also give others a chance to find out how fun our show might just actually be. Did you like this episode? Then why don't you head over to templeofgeek.com. There you'll find all sorts of content that pertains to the world of geek. Thank you for joining me on this episode. I've been Daniel, and I'll see you next time. Please follow us on Twitter Temple of Geek. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Temple of Geek. And remember to visit templeofgeek.com. Your one stop for all things geek. Goodbye. This will conclude our transmission.